Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. I wanted to start by giving you, a, sharing a little bit of a story and a little bit of a story of even what's happened recently through these events that Darren talked about called the Sand. And he's so right when he says, I'm the least likely person to ever lead something like this. I still feel that way every day. Um, I'm from a tiny little town in Alaska. My entire hometown could fit in the field of one of these stadiums. My graduating class was 13. Uh, I'm like a mega introvert. I'd much rather live in the Himalayas in some tiny little village and reach the unreached. But um, somehow God has a sense of humor. And uh, and so he's asked us to do all kinds of crazy things we wouldn't normally do. And so I won't go into all the history of the sand, but we've just recently had two events. And I just think that There are some stories from these two events to help stir our faith this morning. And really where I want to head this morning is an impartation of faith. And not the kind of faith that feels plastic or fake or just like a a hoorah moment or, you know, we were all together and it was awesome. And then I walked out the door and went, I don't really know what that was, but it was kind of fun when we were together. But how do I live this out in my life? 
I want to pray and want to believe today for an impartation of faith that changes the way that we think, changes the way that we look and see, changes the way that we hear, changes the way that we live, a a faith that would literally permeate our actions, our lifestyle, our speech, our way of thinking, everything would be affected by the lens of faith. And I have to say, and I I think we would all feel this way that maybe never before have we needed the lens of faith in America than right now. Because faith is the ability to see something that isn't yet, that's been spoken or declared by the word of the Lord. And right now it is easy to look over the landscape of America and other nations in the world, and it can be difficult to truly hold on to the promises or the prophecies or the words or the dreams that we carry from God. We can read headlines and look at current events and spend a few minutes on social media and go, my gosh, things are insane in our nation. And what does it look like to carry God's declaration, his word, his hopes, his desire over America in the face of all those difficulties and the nations of the earth. And I think that's some of what we're warring for today is his perspective over the world's perspective. And it takes, it's a battle. It's a battle every single day to wake up and to choose faith and not to give in to the cynicism, to the pessimism, or to the unbelief of what's happening around us on a daily basis right now. It is total insanity. And I wanna say this, most of this room, not everyone, We have a major disadvantage. And the disadvantage is most of us in this room have never lived through a true move of God. Now you do any survey of history and you start reading about what God has done in the history of America, the nations, you look at the history of what's happened in in the UK, in Europe, you can find it all over Africa, South America, all over the world. Is these eras of remarkable moves of God in the darkest moments in the history of those nations, where God's spirit and his presence and his power breaks in, the church enters into revival, a true spiritual awakening, and because of it, society is radically impacted. Now we can read about it, and I hope that you all have read about these moves of God in history, but the danger or the downside is most of us in this room have never experienced a true revival. So we're in danger of diminishing what God is capable of because we haven't experienced it ourselves. Anyone in this room that's maybe, you know, 60, 70 years old, maybe you lived through the Jesus movement. It would have been the last like culture defining move of God in our nation and in Europe would have been the Jesus movement. I work with a bunch of people that were saved in the Jesus movement and they think differently than we think. They look at the headlines and they were like, we've seen this before and we saw God break in. We've experienced difficulty like this and yet we've seen God move. In fact, I was just, a friend of mine just showed me a cover cover of uh, Time Magazine and it was two covers, two original copies of Time Magazine. One was in 19, uh, would have been 1967. And in 1967, the cover of Time Magazine was a black cover and this is all it said, is God dead? Cover of Time Magazine, one of the biggest culture-shaping publications in our nation. 1972, five years later, God answered Time Magazine's question. And the cover of Time Magazine, five years later, was a picture of Jesus, and it said the Jesus Revolution. And it was a whole art, you know, magazine dedicated to the Jesus movement sweeping across the nation, literally shifting culture because revival broke into America in the midst of America asking the question, is God dead? 
We're in another era, another time, sexual revolution going on all around us. A big question in many people's minds, is God dead? How many of you know he wants to answer that question right now? He wants to answer the question in the heart of many Americans, where is God in the midst of all of the insanity? And he's looking for a church and he's looking for a people that have eyes of faith to believe for something they've never experienced. We maybe haven't seen it, but history and the scriptures point to the fact that God does it again and again and again. He breaks in when we least expect it. And I think that's the kind of faith he wants to impart into our hearts this morning. We just finished the Send Kansas City in uh, uh, at the end of, uh, or middle of May. And this had been a, a three-year journey because of endless COVID delays and, and difficulties. Nothing but headwind the entire journey towards Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. It was honestly for me and our team is the most difficult thing we'd ever put our hands to. I don't even know how to explain the challenges that we faced along the way. It would take too long and, and it's not necessary for this morning. But I'm so amazed as I look back on May 14th at how God fulfilled so many of his promises in the midst of what seemed like impossible situations. I'll share just a few. It was 39 years ago to the year, and in fact, to the week that we were in Kansas City, that a a well-known national prophetic voice, a man came to Mike Bickle, who leads the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. This is 39 years ago. Mike didn't know this man, didn't believe anything he said, thought he was kind of crazy. But 39 years ago, he said to Mike, he goes, hey, someday you're going to do day and night worship and prayer. And those that know about IHOP KC, they've been praying 24-7. The music's never stopped. The prayer has never stopped for 22 years now. And uh, this was 39 years ago. He said, you're going to do day and night worship and prayer. Mike said, I don't like prayer. I'm an evangelist. He says, he goes, that, that's strange. You're going to do day and night worship and prayer. And he said, not only that, but you're going to pray particularly, you pray for the nations, you pray for America, but you're also going to get grip for the salvation of the Jews, the salvation of Israel. And he goes, I don't even, I don't even get that. He goes, I, I don't, isn't church, the church Israel? Like, I don't understand any of this. And he goes, not only that, he goes, but you're going to do it on Harry S. Truman's property. Harry S. Truman was the president that uh, cast the vote that made Israel a nation in 1948. So he was the political intercessor to make Israel a nation in, in, in 1948. And he said, he goes, Truman was the political intercessor. He goes, but you're going to be the spiritual intercession movement for many things, but one of them is going to be the salvation of Israel. And you're going to do it on Harry S. Truman's property in Kansas City. And Mike literally looked at the guy and goes, I don't know anything you're talking about. And he goes, well, do you even sing or lead worship? He goes, no, I don't sing, I don't lead worship. And the, the prophetic guy goes, the Lord told me you'd be dull, but I didn't know you'd be this dull. <laughs> Fast forward 39 years, we end up, long story short, 20 years ago, Mike is given the Truman property worth millions of dollars. As we get closer to the sand, we really feel we're supposed to do this five-day lead-up on that property of worship and prayer, outreach across the city. So they clear the property for the first time in the 20 years that they've owned it. We throw up a 2,000-person tent on that property. And the other part of the word was this. This is how you know that the guy was a true prophet. He said, I don't get this. He goes, but when you're doing worship and prayer on the Truman property, For Israel's salvation, he goes, they'll be watching in rice paddies all across Asia on unplugged TV sets 39 years ago. He goes, I don't know what they are. I don't understand. But they're unplugged TVs. They're holding them. And they're watching what you're doing, praying for Israel and praying for the salvation of the nations. So... 
39 years later, we're on the Truman property. We throw up this big tent. 2,000 people show up the first night. It seriously feels like revival is in the air. On Tuesday, the next day, Mike goes, we're going to do the word for the first time in 39 years, pitches a smaller tent because there's all kinds of tents on this property, praying for America, praying for the nations, praying for Kansas City, praying. And he goes, we're going to pitch a tent for Israel because that was the word 39 years ago. And that morning, they started 24-7 prayer on the Truman property for the next days ahead, leading up to the send for the salvation of Israel. And they live streamed it and on that first hour that they live streamed. Of course, they can tell from the live stream, thousands across Asia were watching on smartphones as on the Truman property 39 years later, praying for the salvation of Israel, fulfilling something that seemed totally impossible, totally irrational and totally illogical. But this is faith, friends. And Mike leaned over to me in the midst of that one point. He said, Andy, I've been waiting 39 years for this day. I didn't think it would happen. I'm amazed that we're here right now. God fulfilling promises and prophecies decades old. Now that gathering on that field, which led up to the stadium, just grew and grew. We had 1,300 missionaries that were going all across the city of Kansas City. We were in almost 300 locations doing outreach across the city with the local churches. The local churches were the, the backbone of all of it. They were the, man, they were, you know, they were the face of it. And uh, it was remarkable, hundreds of salvations in Kansas City. One of my favorite stories uh, from that, I, I don't know these guys' names, so I'm making it up, but one of the missionaries that was with us, his name was Matt. I'm, I don't know his real name. And that first day on Monday, he went uh, on the streets, I don't remember where, and he led someone to the Lord. Let's say the guy's name was David. David gets radically saved, born again, like real authentic salvation, comes to the tent meeting that night and is like, I've never seen anything like this. That's his introduction to Christianity is 2,000 young people worshiping in a tent, wildly going after Jesus. The next day, the guy's so moved, David, the new believer, he goes on outreach with our teams the next day. So, you know, I don't remember what I named the guy that led him to the Lord. I'm renaming him. What was it? Matt? Okay, Matt. So Matt leads, what was the guy's name? The new guy's name? David to the Lord. David's like, I got to do this. I'm a follower of Jesus. He goes on outreach. Let's just say David leads someone to Jesus that day and his name's Mark, but he does. He literally leads the guy to Jesus. Mark gets rocked by the gospel. David just is one day old in the Lord and led someone to Jesus his first day. Mark comes that night with David, with Matt, and there, the tent is growing every night, three or 4,000 people that night worshiping, and they're like, Christianity is awesome. Like, this is incredible. So then the next day, they all go on outreach again, and Mark, the next new believer, leads another person to the Lord. Let's say he's Jeff, okay? So now Matt led David, who led Mark, who led Jeff to the Lord. They all come that night, and on Friday, Matt baptizes all three of them. And in one week, these guys who weren't even saved are leading other people to the Lord. They're all getting baptized. They're all getting plugged into churches. They're all getting discipled. And there were so many remarkable stories like this in that week leading up to the event itself. Stadium day was amazing. It was hot. Uh, the, the heat definitely affected our, everything that we were aiming for. But there was so much fruit. Thousands and thousands of people committing to reaching their high schools, high schoolers, uh, high schoolers reach, uh, committed to reaching their high schools. Uh, 
there were over 3,000 people that committed to the nations, willing to go anywhere in the world for the sake of the gospel. 500 families beginning the process of becoming foster parents and adoptive parents. That alone could change that region forever. And so much fruit like this. And in that night, the power of God broke out and we knew that there were so many healings and we saw and we heard some testimonies, but in a follow-up call the week after the send, we were with a bunch of pastors that had helped us the whole way. They began to tell their stories and three of them said independently, we had people in our church that came to that event in wheelchairs and they walked out totally healed. Another guy goes, one of my members was completely deaf in one ear instantly opened up, can completely hear now. He goes, their whole family is getting rocked. He goes, this is shaking our church. The power of God is real. So many remarkable testimonies. Again, stunned looking back in what could feel like an impossible hour in America's history. So much difficulty going on around us. It's in the midst of that that God is longing to break out in our nation. It's right now. From there, it was six weeks later, I just got back from going to Norway and uh, where we did the SEND event there. And the SEND there was resisted for the last two years. We've been in the media, media almost every week, accused of all kinds of crazy stuff. The majority of the accusation uh, that was the, in, of the SEND in the media, as it kind of, they pinpointed their, their, their uh, accusations of us, was that we were promoting a radical expression of Christianity. They would translate these articles for me and send them to me. And they would quote myself and others in the articles and that, that we were promoting dangerous Christianity. I read these articles and I was like, I believe everything in there, just print it again. It's like, <laughs> s- s- send it to another newspaper. Like, if it's not dangerous, it's not the gospel. Safe Christianity is not Christianity. There is only one version of Christianity in the Bible and it is death to self, all in, radical abandonment, wholehearted pursuit of Jesus. There's not another version. And so this criticism, I looked at and went, keep criticizing because this is the gospel. And we had all these partner organizations. In fact, every denomination in the nation got behind the sand, including the Catholics. Uh, minus the several denominations that don't believe the Bible anymore. They, they were not joining us. And, uh, but every other denomination in the nation came uh, uh, in, in line with this vision to mobile, awaken and mobilize a generation of Norwegians. And what happened, it was amazing, is God redeemed all this media criticism because the pressure outright in the media is they would write articles saying the sand believes this, 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 they're doing this, 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 this. And we are challenging all of you denominations and organizations disassociate from the sin. It's dangerous, disassociate. Well, not one of them disassociated. And in fact, rather, what it caused was a national conversation in the church in Norway about what is the gospel. And the question arose, if we haven't been getting criticized like this, then what gospel have we been promoting? If we haven't been criticized as dangerous and all in and risk filled and radical, then what have we maybe lost in the last number of years? And so not only did they not disassociate, it galvanized these movements, these denominations, these churches to go, we are all in. And the tagline for the Send Norway became all in for the gospel, all in for Jesus, all in for the nations. Our teams that traveled around Norway leading up had gathered 20,000 Norwegian youth in small groups, 100, 200, 350 living rooms leading up to the Sen. When we were there just uh, two weeks ago, I guess, three weeks ago, I don't remember. 
And uh, it was, it was friends, I don't even know, I, I still am lacking words for what I feel that we experienced there. It was the largest gathering, Christian gathering in the nation in the last uh, 22 years. The last, and it was the same size as that one. The last time there was a bigger gathering of believers in Norway was 45 years ago when Billy Graham went. I want you to imagine for 45 years, that's two generations, that they haven't experienced the gathering together of the church in that way, where young people have grown up in an environment where they might be the only believer in their class, the only believer in their school. Uh, Norway and much of Europe is, is even more secular and more humanist than America. Though we're moving more rapidly that direction, most of Europe has been there 10 or 20 years ahead of America. And so many of these young believers grew up in an environment where they've never in their lives worshiped with a thousand people, much less 10,000 people. They've never been in a gathering where they look around and go, are you serious? All these people love Jesus the way that I love Jesus. And uh, we did a flood in Norway, just like we did in Orlando. Those are the outreaches that we do on the front end. And there were about 800 people that showed up. One of the keys to the breakthrough in Norway was was, uh, 200 Brazilians that flew from Brazil, bringing the fire of God. I'm telling you, there is a spiritual awakening in Brazil right now that is so remarkable. And they, those 200 came, they, everywhere they went, the power of God broke out. Those 800 on the streets, I heard so many stories. I heard a story of one of these, uh, from the person that, that saw it, experienced it from this team of Brazilians, four or five of them. They got off a bus, they walked right up to the first group of five or six people that they met. Turned out that they were all uh, Muslims. Uh, one of them uh, had a cane or was limping or something. They said, can we pray for you? Jesus heals. They were instantly healed on the spot. All five of them go, my gosh, Jesus is powerful. And all five of them give their lives to Jesus on the spot. I heard so many testimonies like this in a nation where people literally, the church and many would say like, God just doesn't do that stuff here. He just doesn't move that way. The evangelism in Oslo in the city in that week leading up, they said it had been 20 years since the gospel had flooded the streets of Oslo. And yet again, miracle after miracle after salvation after salvation leading up to the actual gathering itself, about 10,000 people showed up and for 12 hours we worshiped, we prayed, we cried out to God. God moved in powerful ways and again, thousands committing to these very real mission fields and these very real activations. And this is what struck my heart with Norway. And then I'm gonna jump into the scriptures and and then I wanna land this in our hearts today. 14 years ago, I made my first trip to Norway and I went uh, to speak at some churches, do some different things. But I had read uh, years before about one of the great revivalists and reformers in history named Hans Nielsen Hauge. And Hans Nielsen Hauge got radically born again in 1796. He was 25 years old and he was a farmer. He was out plowing his field one day. He was a believer. And at this time, the state church is the only church in Norway and it's mostly dead. There's no evangelism. And in fact, in his day, it was illegal to evangelize or share the gospel outside of a church. Very strange law. And it was illegal to share the gospel if you weren't an ordained priest. They didn't trust anyone else to share the gospel accurately. So the the nation is stifled in terms of growth. It's largely legalistic and dead religion. And Hans Nielsen Hauge, 25 years old, he's plowing his field. He's a simple farmer. And uh, he has a life-changing encounter with God. I mean, literally where the glory of God broke in on him. No music, no ambiance, no worship team, no preacher. We're talking Saul to Paul got knocked off his horse kind of transformation. He goes up to his house 
and he lays, on his and lays in his bed for three days pondering this encounter. It was so transformative. It was so life altering what God did in his heart, this encounter. And what he felt God was asking him to do was to walk across the nation, which was the only way to get across the nation and to take the gospel to the villages and the small towns and the, the farm homes and the, the common people and to preach the gospel all across Norway. But he knew there would be a price to pay. He knew the laws of the land. He knew the sacrifice he'd be making. So for three days, he's laying in his bed pondering, what's it going to cost for me to obey God? But this encounter was so life-changing. So 14 years ago, I went to that field, walked through it, went to that home, went to that bed that's now turned into, you know, his home is a museum. And I got on my knees on the floor, that old wooden floor next to his bed. And I began to cry out, God, raise up another generation of Norwegians like Hans Nielsen Hauge. Lord, raise up another generation of Europeans who are willing to pay the price for the sake of the gospel, who care more about the good news of Jesus and the lost encountering the love of God than their personal comforts and their personal safety. God, raise up another generation like Hans Nielsen Hauge. And I never dreamt that 14 years later that I'd been in an arena with over 10,000 from Europe. I think 7,500 were Norwegian who actually want to live like Hans Nielsen Hauge. And this is what is, is blowing my mind about that, that I think is so key for America. These young people, the 18-year-old Norwegian, the 20-year-old Norwegian, the 25-year-old Norwegian, they have paid a price to follow Jesus. The deluge of secular humanism and the culture is so anti-Christ that they grew up getting made fun of in school for simply following Jesus. They grew up having to say no to things that all their other friends were doing and get made fun of for it. They grew up getting ridiculed that they actually believed that this was true. But because of that, they're authentic followers of Jesus. Because of the pressures of culture and the pressures of secular humanism, those who have survived, who've not bowed the knee to culture, who've not thrown in the towel and deconstructed, who've not just given up and gone, yeah, it's a good book and Jesus was a great teacher, but have lost the reality of the power of this truth. And those that have grown up in that, they are carrying the original seed of the gospel. And that gathering of 10,000 was a gathering of 10,000 people that are actually wholehearted for Jesus. The gray space is gone. And I feel like in America, it's right where we are right now. It's right where we are. I look around at the headlines right now and they're insane. I look around at social media, it's crazy. You hear the stories of what's going on in your own friends, our own families, even our own lives. And you go, my gosh, another this, another that. You could just fill in the blank. I don't even need to say it because you all know it. Another one of this moment, another one of those moments, another painful this, another painful that, another divisive this, another divisive that. It's everywhere. And yet somehow in the midst of it, I feel that we are on the verge of spiritual awakening. Because God is removing the gray space in Christianity in America. Um, Christianity was never meant to exist and thrive in safe environments. When Christianity is easy, you can, you can start the clock on when it will lose its power and its relevance. 
when Christianity is acceptable and easy and you can call yourself a Christian but then live a totally different life. You can go to church on Sunday and you, know, you can show up at work and no one's really gonna say anything and you, know, you can, you can kind of just get by in this gray space. Then you can start the timer on how long until Christianity loses its power and its relevance in society. But when the pressures begin to mount again, what it does is it removes the gray space and what emerges, what survives, and what thrives is the original seed of the gospel again. And I'm looking at Europe going, man, people have said this place is post-Christian, but I actually think it's pre-revival. And that all of this pressure is serving to raise up a generation that I look at and I go, oh my gosh, you guys are frightening. These 19-year-olds, these 25-year-old Europeans, Norwegians that I was meeting, they've got fire in their eyes. They've paid a price to follow Jesus. Nothing can stop them. They're dreaming about the nations. They love the no compromise lifestyle. And as I look on at what's going on around America, part of me is like crying out, God, pour out mercy on America. Another part of me is going, God, let the persecution increase. Lord, and let the pressure increase because until Christianity costs us something, we won't see the true gospel emerge in the nation again. Until it costs us something to follow him. Until it costs us something to be public with our faith. Until it costs us something to actually believe that every word in here is life and life abundance. Then we won't see a true life-changing transformational power of the gospel return to the church. Now I would just say there are lots of great vibrant churches in America right now. This is one of them. There are lots of on fire believers, but there is also a lot of gray space in America. And the gray space is evaporating and it needs to evaporate. And what is going to emerge that I'm even seeing in Gen Z. I, I have six of them that I'm raising in my, my home. My, my son is 17. He just graduated high school. Guys, I didn't know loving Jesus was possible the way he's loving Jesus at 17. I didn't even know it existed. I had never met an on-fire believer in my life by the time I was 17. I had never met one person in my life who was sold out, on fire, and wholehearted for Jesus. My son doesn't know any other reality. He doesn't know there's another version. He was 16 going to Christian school and said, you know, and which is not, you know, you get private schools. They're not really like all believers. In fact, the kids got kicked out of the public school end up going there. But he goes, dad, I cannot, I cannot, you know, be true to my message about reaching my generation and go to the school. I, I got to go to the public school. Transfers his senior year to the public school. Goes, I've got to live it in front of my friends. I've got to, I've got, my faith has to be able to stand in the face of all of those who disagree with me and yet meet them with love and compassion. So he goes there and he decides he's going to start a Jesus club you know, a group, uh, a lunchtime meeting every week that people can hear, come and hear about Jesus. And every week throughout the school year, they gathered 70 to 80 kids who have never set foot in a church showing up at lunch just to hear more about Jesus because he's living his faith out loud, but he doesn't know another way to live. And I, when I was his age, I knew a lot of other ways to live. I didn't even know the way that he's living was possible. But that's what's happening in the midst of the increase of the humanistic spirit, the increase of culture that is running away from God. God is producing a beautiful, on fire, vibrant church that is gonna carry the transformational seed of the gospel. There is so much hope for America. There is so much hope for the nations. I wanna take you to a passage here in Isaiah chapter six to illustrate this or further speak into this. 
and to pray for this impartation of faith from the scriptures, from the heart of Jesus. Isaiah chapter six, it's a crisis year for Israel. It says in the year that King Uzziah died, which that sentence is packed with context. It's the year that a king died. It's, a, it's the transition of power, which in, not, in a democracy can be somewhat fluid, but in a, in a kingship can be tumultuous. So it's the shifting of power from one king to another. Story of Uzziah is that he had a, a godly history. He, he made some mistakes in his life. He ends up much of his life in later life in seclusion, but for much of his life, he had served God. Now he's transitioning and the kings that would come after him, they would walk away from God. This transition in King Uzziah dying is a huge deal for Israel. Think about it just at a political level, at an economic level, at a military level. In the military age of Israel and the nations around them, this is a massive crisis for Israel. Their king has died. And sometimes we miss that context in the midst of the statements that come after it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is everything. God is looking for a people that can see Jesus as bigger than their headlines, bigger than the wildness, bigger than their own struggles, bigger than our own crisis. He's looking for a people that when things get difficult, don't just look inward, and try and solve it with all society's best self-help remedies. He's looking for a people that in even personal crisis, personal tragedy, national crisis, national tragedy, national moral crisis. He's looking for a people in the midst of all of that that could see the king as bigger than their crisis, bigger than their difficulty. We've established somewhat of a culture somewhat of a normal way of living in our culture in America, that the more difficult things become, the more inward we look. But there is not a lot of hope looking inward. I don't know about you, but the more that I look at my issues, the more depressed I get about my issues. The more I talk about all the things I'm struggling with, the more I struggle with all the things I'm talking about. God is after a people that will look to him in the midst of the crisis. And friends, this is not... Uh, ethereal. This is not just some uh, cliche statement. This is literally looking to the God of the universe instead of the cultural insanity all around us. Where are our eyes? Are our eyes on our bank accounts or is he bigger than inflation? Are our eyes on the headlines or is there a bigger headline than what CNN or Fox or BBC or wherever you go can possibly report? Are our eyes on our culture? Are we taking our cues from social media? Are we taking it from celebrities? Are we taking it from people who just are well-known as if being well-known makes you more true? Or are we taking them from God? Where are our eyes today? Isaiah sees the Lord and he sees him high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple and above him were seraphim, each was sings, uh, with six wings. They covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying and they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to imagine the perspective shift for Isaiah in this moment. 
He goes from crisis. The kings died. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for our nation? What does this mean for our economy? What does this mean for our military? What does this mean for all of our enemies capitalizing on this moment? He goes from that to the heavens opening up and crazy creatures shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. How many of you know most of Isaiah's anxiety disappeared right there? How many think he was worried about his retirement account at that point? How many think he was still thinking about the temporary things in life that are struggle and who's gonna be the next this and what about the upcoming election for the new king and whatever, you know, things that we get so wrapped up in. No, Isaiah is mesmerized. He has seen heaven. He is hearing the sound of the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple is filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is what I feel for you guys this morning. This is where I felt that we were to deviate and go after. The temptation of Isaiah's time and the temptation of our day is to get lost in the static of culture. It's to get lost in the static of media. It's to get lost in the static of endless opinions of what everyone thinks about everything. Do you ever just get exhausted of opinions? Do you ever get exhausted about your own opinion? Everybody has such a strong opinion about everything. And in the midst of all of that static, Isaiah, a man or just like us, a human just like us, with all the same fears and anxieties and temptations and discouragements, has a glimpse into something so much bigger than the static, than the opinions, than the fears, than the anxieties, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. How different would our lives be if we had a constant vision of the exalted Lord? How different would our decisions be if everything was bathed in the vision of an exalted king of the universe? And then he hears the sound, the sound of worship, endless worship, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. And you know, every time they've been saying holy for who knows how long since they've been created, never one time have they said holy and not meant it. Never one time have they said holy and thought it was boring. They're gazing at the king of glory. How different would life be if this song, this sound, not just from a worship team or a well-known worship leader, but this reality of the holiness, the majesty, the awe, the power of God was the soundtrack to our lives. Come on, how different would life be? Where can fear exist when holiness is the soundtrack? Where, where is there a place for anxiety when the exalted enthroned king is our vision? Where is the place for worry about the future? Where is the place for fear of what others will think if we're bold in our faith? How does culture measure up to the uncreated God of the universe? And this is Isaiah, this transformational moment. Holy, 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 I have to think 
that this was a little window of what Hans Nielsen Hauge saw in that farm that day that transformed his life. I didn't finish the story. He went on to change the whole nation. He was imprisoned for 10 years of his life for preaching the gospel, but he single-handedly spiritually awakened the nation. And by the time he died, revival had broken out across Norway. He was also a reformer. He started businesses across the nation. In fact, he was imprisoned once and they ran out of salt in the nation. The government bailed him out of his own prison sentence. He started salt businesses and they threw him back in prison. When he was born, Norway was the poorest nation in Europe. Today, Norway's the wealthiest nation in the world per capita. They've sent more missionaries per capita than any nation on the planet because of a vision of one man that overcame his picture of culture, society, the laws of the land, and all the reasons why he shouldn't obey God. Isaiah has this vision, and here's his response, and this is what I think God has for us today. Maybe the worship team could jump up. As he says, woe woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The immediate response, then the Lord says, but whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He doesn't even say go where. He doesn't say where he's gonna send him. He doesn't say what his mission is. Before he even knows what he's saying yes to, Isaiah declares, here am I, send me. I feel like this is right where we're at as a church in America right now. I wanna say in living in California, you are living in the thick of it right now. You are right in the middle of this cultural war. And if Time Magazine printed a cover right now, the question on the cover might be, is God dead? Not because there aren't lots of churches, but Jesus wants to answer that question. He's done it before and he can do it again. And could it be that we're on the verge of another Jesus revolution? But the key to the entire thing in Isaiah's life and Hans Nielsen Hauge's life in the Jesus movement itself was this moment where Isaiah has revelation that he's been living in compromise. And that compromise might've just been diminished faith. That compromise might've simply been unbelief in his circumstances outweighing his faith. That compromise might've been lots of other things that he was struggling with. But he realized as he looked at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he goes, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people. He goes, I am unclean and my culture is unclean. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then you've got to love the gracious, merciful, kind, radical love of Jesus that meets us in this place. Seraphim flies, grabs a coal from the altar. He touches Isaiah's mouth and he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The revival that Isaiah was believing for had to begin with personal revival. Hans Nielsen Hauge in the Norwegian revival began with one man plowing his field and his personal revival. 
What I watched happen in Norway was 10,000 individuals who have taken a stand for their faith and they're walking in a measure of authentic, wholehearted Christianity. And I watched as God continued to revive their hearts, even in our short time together. As I look at Gen Z, these 18, 19, 20 year olds that I get to work with, my whole job is working with young people, is I am watching God revive and meet people and transform them so that they can believe for a transformation and a revival of culture. So they could actually believe that nations could be shaken, that we actually could believe for something maybe we haven't seen, but has happened so many times in history and is promised again and again in scripture that God will pour out water on dry land. And I'm watching through the process of personal revival that God is preparing his church in the midst of the craziest hour in our nation's history of humanism and secularism, that God is raising up his bride. And he's doing it by marking individuals with personal revival. And when personal revival hits a tipping point, it will lead to the revival of the church. And when the revival of the church hits a tipping point, it will affect all of culture. Gotta have a vision for this to actually believe it's possible that America could have another spiritual awakening. That university is not where you lose your faith. University is where you meet God because he's moving so powerfully on the campus. That we could reverse some of the epidemics. We could reverse some of the statistics. Statistics can tell us where we are, but they cannot prophesy our future. And I want to believe that today, this morning, that God has a revival of faith for some of you in this room. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Sweet.